Good to see each one of you here this morning, and um, I hope your holiday was restful. I hope you made time for rest. If you're visiting with us, it's really good to have you uh, with our family. Please don't be a stranger to our family. We would love um, to count you among our friends. Uh, better yet, we'd love to count you among our family members, so uh, please don't be a stranger. There we go. We'll make this happen. Maybe. There we go. Okay. Hey, so listen, every time that we walk through those back doors right there, uh, we walk by stenciled words on the wall that are meant to remind us of who we are as a church, our identity, and to remind us of what we're called to as a church or our purpose. So if we gather in this space once per week for a full year, over the course of that year, in our coming and going, we would have walked by stenciled words a hundred times, 100 times. That means we've got those words just absolutely locked away, right? Like they might as well be tatted right down your forearm. So without looking, would one of, one of you be willing to recite the words that are stenciled on that wall? Hmm. Hey, and uh, no guilt or shame, I just want to let you know, in preparation for this message, I, I actually, I went for a run on my lunch break on Friday, and when I got back to the building, I got my cell phone, and I came over here, and I took a picture, so that I could refresh my own memory. So, we're together in this. Here's the picture. Here's the picture of the words, I think. I'm just going to wait till one of you says them, says the words. All right. While they're working on the picture, here's what it says back there. We are a family of missionary servants striving to live everyday life with gospel power and purpose. We are ordinary people living with gospel intentionality, sent as disciples who make disciples. Sound familiar? A little bit? A little bit. Those are the words that are right there on that wall underneath the TV. So I, I had begun thinking about those words again as we were um, rounding out last year and as we headed into a new year, and I thought, you know, if I could replace one word in those two sentences and then make that one word our family's single point of focus for the new year, I would remove the word striving and replace, replace it with the word learning, just learning. And it would read like this, rather than we are a family of missionary servants striving to live... We are a family of missionary servants learning to live everyday life with gospel power and purpose. We are ordinary people. Yes, we are. That's good for us to remember. We are ordinary people learning to live with gospel intentionality. So why the change? Why would I make that change? Two reasons, really. The first is simply just honesty. I don't strive well daily. It's public confession. I don't strive well daily. In fact, not only are there days that I do not strive well, I have to confess, don't hate me, there are days that I don't seemingly strive at all towards that end, okay? Can you relate to that at all? You're welcome to nod your head or not. You can not disclose that publicly. It's okay. I just feel like that simple change would help all of us speak more truthfully and think more truthfully and carefully about who we are as a family. No heroes in this room. Jesus is the hero of the family. And that simple change would help us grow to appreciate just how patient the Father is with us. There it is. I think that simple change would help us remember how much grace that he gives to his inconsistently and weakly striving kids, you and me. The second reason that I would make that change is related to desire. Personal, personally, I want to grow. I would like to be able to say striving with full integrity. I want that. Uh, this statement does accurately represent who Jesus has made us to be and what he calls us to. It, so it is what I desire for myself as a follower of Jesus, and it's what I desire for us collectively as a church family. I desire, I want for us to learn well how to live more consistently out of the identity 
that Jesus has given us as his church and to more passionately and consistently pursue the purpose that he has given us, not in our own strength, but by his grace and through the power of the Spirit at work in us. Really, all that we're talking about right now is simply learning to be the church that he has created, called, and equipped us to be, and learning. What we have to do is unlearn dependency on self. That's what we all have to unlearn and learn how to be daily, just moment by moment, dependent on the Spirit who has been given to us. So would you guys be okay with that change? I know we don't vote on much around here. People like to vote. We can vote on it right now. We can start voting. Um, would you be okay with making that a priority for our family this year? Is that all right? All right. I was hoping you would be agreeable because whether or not you were, um, whether or not you were agreeable with the stenciled words, the sermon series that we have planned for early this year are going to help us just get after it. And by getting after it, I mean just learning uh, to be this kind of church. So as we begin, uh, let me just ask you one more question. Would you be willing to join me in asking God to give us a learner's posture, a humble posture as we enter into this new year so that we would be a family learning to be who Jesus has created us to be and to live out what he's called us to be? Actually, let's just pray that right now and we'll, we'll press in. Father, we want to posture ourselves or position ourselves before you this morning as Uh, humble and needy. We want to be what you've created us to be, but we have a profound inability on our own, and you know our desires. They're weak, and so we ask that you would cultivate that humble heart within us and give us a desire to learn, Uh, help us to speak truthfully about ourselves, to think truthfully about ourselves, and to see you as the hero, and to unlearn dependency on self, and to learn this year instead to be dependent upon your spirit. Father, we just want to be the family that you've created us to be for your fame and for the good of people around us. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So listen, no matter if you've been a Christian for one day or 20 years, no matter if you've read a bunch of books about the church or zero books about the church, no matter if you grew up in the church or today is your first day gathered with the church, all of us need to learn. That's the bottom line. All of us need to learn. We never stop learning. Some of us, actually, those of us who did grow up in a church, we need to relearn many things that we learned and believed to be true or or culturally got used to us. So here's what I want to do with you. I want to approach God's word with you with a blank sheet of paper. Maybe 5% of you have blank sheets of paper. So open a new note in your phone, like just nothing on it. And let's start from scratch this year. Um... And let's approach it with a humble posture as we seek to grow in our understanding of who the church is. And notice we said who and not what, right? Who the church is and what we are called to. So I'm asking you to join me in giving ourselves this year to relearning who God has made us to be, our identity, and to what he calls us, our purpose. And we'll do this for Jesus' fame and for the good of those who are not yet part of our our family. We're going to begin our our journey of learning in the New Testament book of Revelation, and the series is entitled Seven Letters. We're going to explore seven letters written to seven different churches. Nearly each of them commend a quality in the life of that church. And nearly each of those letters correct a deficiency in the life of that church. And after Revelation, we'll turn to the letter of 1 Corinthians. That's Paul's letter to a young church living in a modern city. Of all the letters in the New Testament, and they're all good, that one may be most applicable to our particular situation here. And then after 1 Corinthians, we're actually going to turn to an Old Testament book, the book of Jonah, um, where we learn the story of a reluctant, even resentful missionary. And what we're going to learn in Jonah is that our father is a missionary God. He's a sending God. He's a going God. And so he, he calls his family to be like he is, a family of missionaries. We are a going people. We're a sent people. So this morning, we kick off the seven-letter series in Revelation, and these very oft-forgotten letters are found in chapters two and three. Now, they're the very letters that we flip past every time so we can just get to the apocalyptic kind of stuff and just have our minds blown by all the imagery that's there. But in case we didn't know, there are seven very important letters at the very beginning of that book written to churches just like ours. So while normally we flip past and normally you're used to a series in Revelation dealing with end times kinds of things, not this one. We're just going to focus on those letters. 
And here's the big idea for us. Um, what we're going to do is we'll be in chapter one today, because chapter one kind of sets those letters up, and then all the letters are in two and three. And here's the big idea. The church is God's sent family of servant missionaries, okay? But the church is God's sent family of servant missionaries. Sorry, I've got two commas. So here's the first one. For whom safety is found in a sovereign sending king, not in safe cities or places. Big idea. The church is God's sent family of servant missionaries for whom safety is found in a sovereign sending king, not in safe cities or places. Then we'll kind of have three supporting ideas that fall out of the text. I think you'll see them as we read. Let me just give them to you at the top so you know where we're going. The first one is this. We learn, as a church, we learn our identity and purpose by reading, hearing, and keeping God's word. That's where we find identity and purpose. Number two, we learn our identity and purpose by learning who our Father is and what he has done for us through Jesus and the Spirit. And number three, we learn not to take confidence in safe places, but in our sovereign sending King. So let's read Revelation chapter one together. I'll read it for you and you can follow along and uh, then we'll unpack it. Here it is, 1-1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold... Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. I am the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, that's Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, lamp stands, one like a son of man, imagery for Jesus, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, uh, I love when the Bible just does this for us because we're clueless. Like, here's these things that you saw and here's what they are. Uh, the seven stars are the angels, could be messengers or guardian angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are, in fact, the seven churches. All right, so what did we just see? The book of Revelation was authored by a guy named the Apostle John. We saw that in verse 1. This guy, the Apostle John, also authored the gospel according to John, and he authored those short letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Same guy. Same guy. John was one of Jesus' earliest disciples. He was a fisherman. 
So he did for a living, turned, as Jesus said, fisher of men. He changed his pursuits as he followed Jesus. After Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension back to the Father, John spent the rest of his life as a church planter, helping to start new churches, and then overseeing those churches. Now, as an old man, John has been banished to the island of Patmos under the reign of Emperor Domitian. You can read about that in the history books. So we're talking AD 95-ish. That's the period of history we're talking. Uh, Patmos was a sm- is a small island in the Aegean Sea. It's just a little bit bigger than Tokushiki. Have you been out there yet? Oh, for shame. You got to go visit Tokushiki, okay? It's a little bigger than that. So in other words, it's dwarfed by Okinawa. It's only like six by 10 miles. Um, yeah, six by 10 is really, really small. So this is Patmos. Um, Patmos was something like Australia and our, old, and our own good state of Georgia. And all I mean by that is, no offense, they were settled in part by those who had been charged by the, by the crown for committing a crime. So Georgia and Australia and Patmos just kind of settled by prisoners, largely. Okay, That's what Patmos is. Um, and so, so John is in Patmos because he's been banished there by the crown. He was found guilty of basically he was preaching the gospel, talking about Jesus, and they did not like that at all. So he's here, but he was free insofar as he could likely just move around the island wherever he wanted, but he was not actually allowed to leave the island. That was his prison cell. Um, while in Patmos, John receives a vision from God, which he is told to write down in the form of a letter and send to churches that are located in seven strategic cities. And that's what we read in verses 9 to 11, where it said, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos. And he, now he explains why he was there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, he was preaching and talking about allegiance and loyalty to King Jesus. And the king hated that. He's threat, the emperor's threatened by that. And so they, they lock him up. So he's here on Patmos. And I was in the spirit, he says, on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. We listed those cities. And so we noticed in verse four that these seven churches were in Asia. Uh, do we have the map, guys? Do we have that just, to, just for your frame of reference so you can see where this is at? We can understand Asia to mean the Roman province that spanned the western portion of Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. Um, these seven churches were located in seven of the most populous, wealthy, and influential cities of the day. They were roughly 30 to 50 miles from each other, but they were, here's what's cool, they were all located on the same circular road, so he just gave the letter to the postman, and it was one long postal route, and he just ran through these cities with the letter. Um, John receives this vision, he writes it down on one scroll, and he sends the letter by courier, and then the entire scroll, including the seven different letters addressed to different churches, were to be read in each church. So they would read the one that was addressed for them, but they were also supposed to read all the letters and submit to each of them as if they were, as if they were their own. And then those letters, not only would they hit those seven cities, but these are the key cities where communications flow out to the smaller cities and the smaller towns and the villages. So these letters are going everywhere, right? They start here, but then they filter out through the rest of, of the kingdom. So you can lock John up, but you can never lock the word of God up. So some of you are wondering then, um, are these letters even for us? I mean, if they were written 2,000 years ago and addressed to seven different churches, and we read the list twice, we did not see Okinawa there or Pillar Church of Okinawa. So good question, like, are they for us? And to your question, if you're wondering, yes, they are for us today, and here are two reasons why they are. First, this is cool, at the conclusion, we'll see this in the coming weeks, but at the conclusion of the final four letters, we read this line. Uh, here's an example from chapter 3, verse 22. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we see that in four different letters. In other words, each church which received these letters was to read and take to heart every single letter, not just their own. So the question is not whether one of these letters was addressed to Pillar Okinawa. The question is, have we received the letters? Like, have they come to us? And yes, they have. The letters have come to us. So like the other seven churches, then they are for us. And so the real question then becomes, will we be the kind of people who have ears to hear what is said in the letters? 
Will we be the kind of people who have a humble posture, willing to see that these letters are for us today? Second, here's a second reason. The number seven, especially throughout Revelation, is not an incidental number. It's a number signaling, uh, signaling wholeness or completeness or fullness. In other words, the churches represented among these seven typify all other churches in the world. So they stand as representative churches for all churches in every place and in every generation. So while these letters are historically written to specific local churches, each of them has something for us and stands authoritatively over us. Again, the question is not whether or not they're for us and whether or not they're relevant. The question is whether or not we will submit to God's word as authoritative over us and whether or not we'll have ears to hear what's there and actually apply it to our lives. So again, here's the big idea. The church is God's sent family of servant missionaries. We're going to see that unfolded in points one and two. And then our final point will help us see that um, as God's church, our safety and security is not found in a safe city or a safe place. We're not dependent upon our circumstances. Our safety and security is found solely in the sovereign sending king who is over us. All right, so let's talk first about learning our identity and purpose by reading, hearing, and keeping God's word. Do you notice that verse one begins with this word, revelation? Revelation simply means an unveiling. Uh, it means a revealing. And we do this all the time now, and thanks to Facebook, we get new revelations all the time. Gender reveals, yay. Like, that's a revelation. That is something formally unknown being disclosed to us in just crazy ways, right? The crazier, the better. That's a revelation, disclosing something previously unknown. And so this revelation comes from God the Father through Jesus. We learn for his servants. And so the beauty of this is revelation is always given. It's not something that we have to do to earn. It's not something that we have to hunt down to find. God gives revelation to his kids, us. He gives us this revelation. We don't have to, dis what that means for us is we don't have to discover our identity as a church or as Christians. We don't have to discover purpose. We don't have to create identity or purpose. We don't have to imagine it. That's a popular idea now. You just have to imagine your identity and grow into it. You don't have to define it. We don't have to develop it. We just have to receive it. In fact, that's what good fathers do for their kids. They give these two gifts to their children. Identity, this is who we are, family. This is who we are, and this is what we do. Those are gifts that a good father gives to his kids, and that's what our father does for us. He reveals it to us through his word clearly. And here's our first identity statement. So if we have a blank paper or a blank notebook, and we're just like starting from scratch, rebuilding our understanding of who the church is and what we're called to, here's our first word, servants. The church is servants. We are servants. It's the first word that we can write down uh, for our future definition that we'll build this spring. The church is comprised of servants. That's baseline. That's who we are. Now, notice the, pro the promise made in verse 3. It says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So there's a promise attached to receiving the word and obeying the word. What we want to clarify is, because there's a lot of confusion uh, in our half of the world, the blessing here is not material. God is not promising cash, cars, or personal kingdoms for obedient little kids. That's not the blessing. Uh, the blessing, the promised blessing, is actually better. It's spiritual. It's a right heart. It's a soul at rest. It's the gift of joy, it's the gift of peace, it's the gift of contentment, it's confidence in place of fear, it's nearness with God, reconciliation with our God. The promised blessing is uh, the promise of receiving life, it's life-giving, as life as, as it was meant to be lived. The promised blessing is not only that we would receive life, it is that we would become life-giving to other people. That's the blessing that's promised there for those who will uh, read and receive and submit to the word. We will become an increasingly life-giving community. That is the blessing, guys. If we will see the word servant, we read it, and we hear it, and we embrace it. The, the promised blessing 
is in the embracing of the word. This is who we are. And this is what we're called to, not just hearing it, not just reading it, but embracing it and living in that identity. If we do, guys, this year, we will increasingly know life the way that God intended, us for, intended for us to know life. And here's the beauty of the promise. We will increasingly grow into the kind of community that is life-giving to the people who are not even yet a part of our family. And notice... Notice that we will learn to be the church Jesus calls us to be only as we give ourselves to reading, hearing, and taking heart to his word. We will find life, and we will become an increasingly life-giving family. Uh, did you also see in this paragraph that John is described as God's servant? Did you see that? Like there are servants, and then there's John as servant. Now notice what he as a servant of God does in verse 2. What do he do? Do you see it in your Bible? Verse 2 he bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even all that he saw. So that's a purpose statement right there. That's, that's the Bible saying, here's, here's who you are, servant, and here's what servants do. Servants of God tell people about our good father, and we tell them about our rescuing King Jesus, and we tell them everything we have seen and experienced. Again, we don't have to discover it. We don't have to imagine it. We don't have to create it. We don't have to define it. God is so good to us in this way. He's like, hey, here's who we are, guys, as a family. We're servants. Okay, what do, what do we do, Dad? Like, what do we do with that? Well, here's what we do. Servants serve our God by pursuing those who are far from the Father and telling them about our good dad, telling them about our rescuing king, and telling them everything that we have seen and experienced in the gospel. All right, so at the end of point one, what do we have so far on our paper for identity? We are God's servants. And what do we have for purpose that flows out of that identity? We tell other people the good news of Jesus, right? It's that simple. The, our problem is not in the complexity of this thing. Our problem is in our submission to what God calls us to be and what he calls us to do. Servants who tell others good news, okay? So we learn our identity and purpose by reading, hearing, and keeping God's word. Point two, we learn our identity and purpose by learning who our father is and what he has done for us through Jesus and his Holy Spirit. From verses four to eight, this entire paragraph points us to our Trinitarian God, uh, the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. It points us to who they are, and it points us to what they have done, and it points us to who we are in, what of, in light of what God has done for us. And so when we're wondering who we are and what we are to do, we don't look to ourselves. We look to him. We see who he is, and we see what he has done. And when we see those things, our identity and our purpose are as clear as day. So John begins, this is really cool. This is like a gospel identity sandwich right here, okay? We've got the top and the bottom and some stuff in between. Here's how John has it structured. John begins and closes the section with statements about our Father, okay? So it begins with God the Father, closes with God, God the Father. In between, he makes one brief statement about the Spirit, and then that's followed by several key import, important statements about Jesus. And then right smack dab in the middle of this whole thing, right in between the statements of Jesus... John gives us some identity statements about the church. And so here's, again, what we see. We learn our identity and our purpose by learning who our Father is and what he has done for us through Jesus and through his Spirit. So for identity, we look to him, not to ourselves. For identity, we look to him, not to ourselves, and not to culture. It's not redefined with each generation. The church does not have to reinvent itself. The church does not have to make itself relevant. We struggle with relevance when we search for identity based on the culture. We struggle with relevance when we search to make ourselves real. You know when we don't struggle with relevance? when we simply embrace who God has called us to be and embrace what God has called us to do. The church will never be more relevant to people who are far from God than when it submits herself to our good father and just lives into the reality of who he has made us to be. It's a beautiful, beautiful gift. All right, so we look to the father first. We see this in verse four and verse eight. It says, him who is and who was and who is to come, in verse four, and then verse eight, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the almighty. So in our, our gospel identity sandwich, 
kind of begins and ends the same way with very similar statements about our father. So who is our father? Well, these words tell us that he was present at the beginning of history. He has been present throughout all of history, and he will be present at the end of history. But it's not just about his presence. What we read is that this God is the Almighty over history, meaning that he is sovereign over all of history, every second of it. And so the recipients of this letter that John is crafting will need the confidence that flows from having that kind of a dad because of the situations that they face. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the situations they face in a minute. But here's the bottom line. Here's what John's getting at. When you know God as father, he is a confidence-instilling God. Confidence is derived not from self, that's a false sense of confidence. True confidence, true self-confidence, as you will, if you will, is derived from a, an, a, a, an awareness of who your father is and a submission to him as your dad. That is the source of confidence. That's who our dad is. And then John points to the spirit, verse four, it says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And you're like, wait, John, I thought you said the Holy Spirit. Like this just said seven. I thought we had a trinity. What in the world is going on? There is an outside possibility that John is talking about God the Father, God the Son, and then seven angelic beings that serve God and are at his throne, seven messengers, seven spiritual beings. Possible, but I don't think so, and I'm going to tell you why. I believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Remember, in all of this imagery, what do we say about the number seven? The number seven often points to the idea of fullness or entirety or perfection or something along those lines. And I think that's what is going on here. This is John's way of pointing to the Spirit and just seeing perfection and the fullness of the presence of the Spirit like as a powerful, personal being. I think that's what he's doing. The other reason I think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit and not just to seven angels is the position and the role. Here's what I mean by position. It would be very unusual for John or any other writer of scripture to start talking about God the Father and to finish up by talking about God the Son and by talking about a lesser being in between the two. You just rarely see that. It's far more likely that he's talking about the full trinity, God the Father, man, and here's, here's the spirit and all of his beauty and his power, perfection, and now God the Son. It'd be really unusual for him to insert a lesser being into that, into that structure. The other reason I really think it's the spirit here and not just some angelic beings is, what does he say at the up, right up front at the top? He says, grace and peace come from, and then he talks about God the Father, and then these, these seven spirits, and then God the Son. Does grace and peace, um, grace and peace, I think that's how he says it. Yeah, grace to you and peace from him. Do those come from just any old being or a human being? No, those are ultimate gifts that come only from God himself. So I really believe this is the Holy Spirit here. And the three people referenced here, the fullness of the Trinity, Father, Spirit, and Son, are the source of all grace and peace. So again, guys, just like identity and purpose, we don't get grace and peace from self. And we don't get peace through good circumstances. That's not where peace comes from. If your peace is derived from circumstances, it will be ripped away from you at the slightest change. Peace is derived, true peace is derived from the Father, from the Son, and from the Spirit. It's, only, it's something that only God can do. Spirits, lowercase s, don't give us grace and peace. The Holy Spirit does that work. And so here he is with God, he is God, and he is sent by God to give his children grace and peace. That's the role of the Spirit. And then John points us to the Son. Verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Those are three big statements about Jesus. He's the faithful witness. Uh, in other words, Jesus faithfully revealed the Father to us. More revelation. The Father was unknown and unknowable until Jesus made him known to us. Jesus is the only reason we know the Father and are reconciled to the Father. But that word witness is very often translated martyr. And Jesus is, in fact, the true martyr. Jesus willingly gave his life. But, you know, martyr, that word has fallen on really hard times in our modern era because we are used to thinking now of martyrs as those who give their lives to destroy many lives. But in the beautiful gospel sense of the word martyr, a martyr is one who would willingly give his or her life so that others could live and be loved. And that's what Jesus has done. He is the true and faithful martyr. 
That's who Jesus is. He's also the firstborn of the dead. That simply means Jesus is the first of a really big family that the Father is rescuing from death. And Jesus is the rescuer. So he's the firstborn of a really big family of former rebels who are now rescued in to be sons and daughters, firstborn of the dead. And Jesus is also the ruler of kings on earth. That's good news for us because it's an election year and we're five days deep and I'm already to go back to just another year, another time, click my heels and be done with the whole thing. But that's not how it works. And it's already a chaotic geopolitical year and that chaos impacts a lot of you and a lot of your families. Now, this simple statement here, right here that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth should be tattooed on your forearm so that we see it as we're reading and posting to social media. So this is your filter now for everything you read from the news and in social media, and it's your filter now before you start spouting off about anything uh, in our society or in our culture. Jesus is the ruler over all the kings on the earth. Jesus rules. And what is that gift that then gives to his kids? We can rest. Guys, Jesus rules over every king. Jesus rules over every elected official. Jesus rules. It's that simple. And so as his family, we are not an anxious family. We are not a reactive family. We are not a family that needs to freak out. Um, Nor are we a family that needs to divide over partisan politics or political parties or rulers. We are a family that is united under the beautiful gift that Jesus rules and that he is the true king over all the earth. And that gives us a profound sense of rest. And John says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Guys, what John is saying is those who do not repent of their rebellion and believe the gospel, their only response when Jesus returns will not be joy, it will not be gladness, it won't be, oh good, he's here to fix all the broken things. The only response from that heart that is not repented and believed will be one of profound mourning and a sense of woe, this wailing, understanding then that Jesus has returned not as a rescuer, but as a judge. He will return as both of those things. For those who have repented and believed, Jesus returns as rescuing king and savior. For those who do not repent and believe, Jesus returns as judge. And then right in the middle of all these statements about the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, there's us. There we are, right in the middle. It's this gospel identity sandwich And we learn that this Trinitarian God loves us and brought all of this power to bear for our good. Look at verses five and six. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us, check this phrase out, a kingdom and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. So what do we learn about ourselves? God loves us. We are deeply loved. This is a family statement. So we're not just servants, we are we're, we're a family. That's what the church is. It's not a place. It's not a building. It's not an organization. Definitely not a denomination. Like the church is a people, a family. So we're deeply loved. And what God did for us as a family is he set us free. So we are freed from our sins by his blood, his very life. We are free from the consequences of our rebellion. No more judgment, no more shame, no more guilt. And we're also free from the power of that sin. You don't have to be a rebel anymore. You don't have to be a slave to whatever that thing is that has been destroying you in your rebellion. He's made us free. And now this statement, we are a kingdom of priests in service of the Father. How's that for an identity statement about the church? Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever heard that before? What, what is the church or who is the church? We are a kingdom of priests. You're like, whoa, that's cool. I love Lord of the Rings and stuff. That's amazing. Guys, we're a kingdom of priests. I don't love the Lord. I was just trying to use one of your voices. Sorry, that didn't work out very well. It's not new, though. This has always been the aim, our Father's aim for his people. Everybody always wrestles like, when did the church start? Where can you see the the beginnings of the church in Scripture? I'm not going to get into that this morning necessarily, though I might tip my hand. This very phrase, do you know where the first time it occurs is? you know where it's found? All the way back in Exodus, at the beginning of the story, when God has rescued his people, here's Exodus 19, verse 5. He says, you shall be my treasured possession among all my peoples. And you ready? And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. There it is. And then it's repeated again in 1 Peter 2, 9, where we read this at the beginning of the service. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 
So what have we gained from our, for our paper? We had servants. That was already on our paper. We, we just added family, okay? We're not gonna build the definition. We're just adding components right now. So we got servants. We got family. We're deeply loved sons and daughters. Um, and now we just added kingdom of priests. Can I just ask you, have you ever thought of the church in that way? Have you ever thought of yourself in that way? I'm a priest. Like, we are a kingdom of priests. Um, what do priests do? Like, what do priests do? What are they supposed to do? Maybe that's a better question. What are priests supposed to do? Um, priests go to people. Priests go. Okay, so they're sent. Priests go. Priests love people. Priests care for people. Priests nurture the souls of people. Priests pray for people. Priests speak truth and use gentle strength for the good of others. Priests point people to God. They speak life-giving and encouraging words. They bring people to God. Guys, priests go. They're sent out. So when we read this in Revelation 1, guys, this is not just some obscure phrase. This is not a phrase for these seven churches. This is God the Father letting us know who we are as his people. That's you. This is your identity. We are sent as a kingdom of priests for the good of other people. That's who we are, guys. This is who we are as a church, a kingdom of priests sent by a good father for the good of other people. Uh, Jesus said as much. He said, as the father has sent me, he's the true and better priest. Then what did he say to us? The lowercase p priests. Even so, you just stay here and stay in your building and have a nice safe space for your, your church. Be good and I'll be back. No, he said, even so, I'm sending you as priests. Look, I get it. Somebody generated orders for you to be here in Okinawa. But can I just tell you something? The only reason those, those orders came off the desk is because God already decided that you would be sent here to represent him as, as a priestly kind of person for the good of other people. It's the only reason you got orders. You're sent here already by God the Father. He is sovereign over everything. Uh, one of my favorite authors, a guy named Donald McLeod, said this. He said, Jesus did not live a life of detachment. He lived a life of involvement. He lived where you could see human sin, near human swearing and blasphemy. And he lived where you could see human disease and observe human mortality and poverty and squal- squalor. His mission was fully incarnational because he taught men by coming alongside them, becoming one of them, and sharing their environment and their problems. And then he goes on to ask this question. How can we as a church effectively serve people if we are not in their worlds? How can we be salt and light in the darkened areas of our cities if we ourselves don't have any meaningful relationships with the outsiders of our day? Jesus came right alongside the people and shared their experiences at every level. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He's right, guys. We are sent as priests to point people to the true and better priests. So let's just ask this question at the beginning of a new year. Are we orienting our lives with that reality? Like, are our lives even oriented in that direction so that we can live in that way towards people outside of our family? Is your family oriented that way with your time? Or we could ask this, for those of you who are involved in a missional community, which... I would love to see all of you involved with the missional community. We get the community piece pretty good. We get it down pretty well. We're really weak on the missional piece. That's just my personal assessment, even of my own missional community. Um, What do we need to do to reorient the lives of our missional community around this identity and this purpose? I think those are good questions for us in this new year. All right, so what do we have? We gotta start winding this guy down. We're a deeply loved family. We're servants of the king. We're sent as kingdom of priests. I mean, that kind of sounds like what we have on the wall, right? It kind of sounds like what we just read at the beginning of our gathering. We are a family of missionary servants. And guys, here's the thing about God's family of missionary servants. Jesus sends us, his missional family, to pursue people. We're the pursuers. We are the pursuing ones. He sends us to live on the edges and in the margins. He sends us to live in the dark corners. He sends us to risk. He sends us to sacrifice. He sends us to love and to give and to speak truth and to be rejected and to be oppressed. And in all that suffering, not to retaliate, but to show mercy. Jesus calls us not to occupy safe spaces where we are comfortable, but to go into risky places for all of these purposes. 
Guys, this was true of the first recipients of this letter. How do we know? Well, in verse nine, what did John say to them? He said, I, John, your partner in what? What was the first thing he said? Tribulation. They were all sharing in these kinds of things because they were, they were sent priests and they were sharing in the patient endurance that are in, that's in Jesus. In other words, their lives were really hard. They were in very difficult cities, very difficult places. You don't have to take my word for it. Let me just give you three, three, three examples that we'll see in the coming weeks. Here's in the letter to Ephesus, chapter two, verse three, John writes, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. They were suffering. And to the letter to Smyrna, chapter two, verse nine, family, I know your tribulation. And here's the most compelling. This is insane, actually. Have you ever seen this one to Pergamum? Just read that. John says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's dark, guys. But why were they there? They were there because God the Father in his sovereignty sent them as a kingdom of priests to bring light into that dark city. So all of us are sent. Some of us are sent to places like Pergamum. Maybe not all of us, but we are all sent. So we should ask in our sending, well, Dad, what about our safety? Like, what about our security? What about my family's well-being? What about our confidence? You wouldn't put us in a place like that, would you? And our final point, as God's people, we learn not to take confidence in safe places, but in our sovereign sending king. In the entire last paragraph, John is just describing his vision. He sees seven golden lampstands. We learned at the end of the chapter that those lampstands represent the seven churches. So we can add that to our list of words. We've got servant, family, kingdom of priests. Now we have lampstand, meaning... This is important for us to hear, guys. We as a church are not the light. We are not the heroes. We're not not what people need. We're not that light. We're the lampstand, so we carry the light that people need, and that light is the gospel of Jesus through the work of the Spirit. And so we, when we are shaped by the gospel, are that lampstand that carries that light into the dark corners of all the brokenness around us. So we can add that to the list. And John hears a loud voice, and so he turns to see who the, vo- who, who the voice belongs to. And he sees Jesus, and Jesus is in the middle of the lampstands. So Jesus is walking among his churches. He's with them, and he sees them. They belong to him. He watches over them. And John sees Jesus dressed as a sovereign king. No one can challenge his rule. And John sees that Jesus' eyes are like flames of fire, meaning that nothing is hidden from Jesus' sight. And John sees that Jesus' feet are like hardened bronze, meaning that he is a strong king and no one can stand against him forever. And John hears that Jesus' voice is like the drowning roar of rushing water, meaning that Jesus speaks with absolute authority. He speaks with absolute authority. And in his right hand, Jesus holds seven stars. So Jesus has these stars, which we learn are their messengers or protecting angels for each church. I love this. So Jesus is watching over us. He's with us. And he holds in his hands these guardian messengers that he can send whenever and to whomever he needs or desires for their good. That's how attentive Jesus is to his family. He cares for us. And from his mouth comes a two-edged sword, meaning that Jesus judges every soul by the word of his mouth. This is what we will be judged by, guys. Like right here, the, the, the sword from his mouth representing the very word of God. And his face was like the sun shining at full strength, meaning that Jesus is God in all his glory. And all of this adds up to be not a happy image, not a storybook image, a terrifying image. A scary image, guys. Look, John is a man's man. He's tough. He's old. He's basically in a Roman concentration camp. He's seen terrifying before. But face to face with this Jesus, in his fear, John passes out like a dead man. In all his glory, guys, Jesus is the scariest person in the universe. We need to think about that. But what does he do? What does Jesus do? Then Jesus lays his right hand on John, 
right hand being, being a symbol of all strength and all power. So Jesus takes his strength and touches John with gentleness for his good, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus brings all of that strength to bear for the good of those he loves. Um, I was actually finishing this up last night and one of my favorite pastors, a guy named Ray Ortland, tweeted while he was reading this passage and he said, he said, when the scariest person in the universe, that's Jesus, tells you not to fear, you are unstoppable. He's right, guys. John's vision was not meant so much for John. John's vision was meant as a gift to the people in these seven cities who were enduring real suffering as they lived as, sent, as a sent kingdom of priests in dark corners of the world, living in places like Pergamum. And the gift that they receive from this vision, the gift that we receive from this vision is this. We can pursue people in the dark corners of the city with confidence, not fear. Jesus' church does not need safe spaces or safe cities, and our confidence is not fragile. Our security is not threatened because it's rooted in our sovereign, all-powerful, sending king. Guys, let's just ask this last question. Are we pursuing people into the dark and broken spaces around us like we believe this is true? Are we unafraid in our pursuit of people and our willingness to lovingly speak the truth of the gospel? Are we unafraid because we understand that this Jesus stands over us and is using all of his strength, he's bringing all to bear for his fame and for our good? Guys, are we pursuing the people around us like we believe this is true and like we believe this same Jesus is pursuing them for their good? As we set off into this new year, let's keep building this definition out. Let's keep adding our words. We'll build more each week. We'll arrive at definitions, a definition. But let's strive to be a learning people. Let's just learn to live in the reality of who God has created us to be for his fame for our good and for the good of those who are not yet adopted in. Let's pray. Father, there's so much here for us, but I just pray this, this morning that you would drive deep into our hearts that we are, a, we are a kingdom of priests. And you send your priests out. You call us to sacrifice for the good of other people who are not yet adopted into your family. So Father, I pray that you give us humility. Help us to adopt a posture of learning. I pray that this year we would grow into the kind of family that you want us to be. Father, thank you for adopting us in. Thank you for bringing your strength to bear for our good. Thank you for showing us mercy instead of judgment. And Father, if there's anybody here with us this morning who, in anticipation of your return, would know fear or mourning rather than joy, I pray that you would show them the truth of who you are. Show them the truth of who they are, a rebel. Show them their need for mercy and your willingness, your joy to give it to them. And may this morning they take that step that so many of us in here have taken, that we would lay down our arms, that we would repent of our rebel ways, and that we would run to you for mercy and grace, and, and, and then meet you as a loving dad, a rescuing king, and a comforting spirit. And may they become a member of our family. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.